0: The one I think people know you for yes. is when you hosted the White House Correspondents Association Dinner. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in political history, this is probably going to be one of the most famous niggas of all time in terms of the way, right. <laughs> what you said. So here is Larry oh, at wow. the White House Correspondents Association Dinner.
1: So, Mr. President, I'm going to keep it 100. Yo, Barry, mm-hmm. you did it, my nigga. <laughs> you did
0: it. Did you know going in that you were gonna say that about?
1: Absolutely.
0: You did. Of
1: course. You were it, like,
0: if I get one joke off, is this one. <laughs> it was the first
1: thing I thought of. In Whoa. fact, I almost, there were a couple of times I almost dropped it and Robin Thede, who was my head writer of that, you know, was helping me compile jokes and stuff said, absolutely, you have to do it. For and the culture. <laughs> it can, Well, like, yes, it wasn't, it wasn't in there as a joke, Jamel. It was in there as a comment. It was right. something that we could only say in this moment.
0: today's guest was present the first time i said fuck on television by the way not only did i get to say fuck but i got to say it in relation to stacy dash who i was proudly calling out for being a buffoon at the time good times i said fuck on larry wilmore's nightly show on comedy central this was a few years ago And unfortunately, that show ascended to television heaven and ended after a distinct one-year run. But Larry Wilmore's incredible career as a writer, producer, creator, and actor extends far beyond his run on Comedy Central. This guy has done some of everything, which includes and is not limited to writing for the iconic show In Living Color, creating and executive producing The Bernie Mac Show, serving as an executive producer on Blackish. Larry is also executive producer on Insecure, and he was a producer, writer, and an actor on one of my favorite shows of all time The Office. He is a true creative and just inked a huge deal with Universal Pictures. I wanted Larry in the podcast because he's just a guy I enjoy talking shit with. Uh, We're, of course, going to discuss how he got into writing and comedy, which is really fascinating. He's also uh, been able to wear so many different hats. And I want to ask him about how challenging those jobs are. Uh, But up next, wait no more. Larry Wilmore on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Larry Wilmore, seriously, what black show don't you work on? I'm just, I'm just curious. You got grownish, blackish, insecure. <laughs> Am I missing one? Is there another black related show? I have show?
1: decided that the black shows are going to be my thing.
0: Can you let you somebody know? else people, get a paycheck? Look, there
1: was a time in the '90s where black people said, "I need to work on one of those white shows," you know. And I said, "No, no, no, no. I'm going to corner the black show market," <laughs> you know.
0: Pretty lucrative market these
1: thing. days. Hey, man, you know somebody's got to do it. You know, Tyler Perry decided to do it in movies. You know, he had one black show on for a while, tried to do another one, but it's like, no, 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 Tyler Perry, you handle the movies, I'll stay over here.
0: <laughs> You're like, let me show you how it's done. This yeah. is how you... No, it's you actually not true, men. but
1: I appreciate the, the thought. <laughs>
0: no, know. but I mean, I, honestly, I think when uh, when thinking now about some of, you know, the the... Not necessarily I wouldn't call them revolutionary, but some of the standout black shows mm-hmm. that are now. I mean, you have some link to. I mean
1: Yeah, I've been very fortunate with the being around long enough <laughs> and I'm always interested in new, you know, and doing something original. It's always been in, kind of in my bones and I've been fortunate to be associated with stuff, not even just, you know, what we call the black stuff, you know, just Happen to be in the sometimes right place at the right time, and sometimes things that I pushed out there and tried to make it and that kind of stuff too. Yeah.
0: So, is this um, is this real? Like, are we really in Hollywood with all the the different uh, type of black content that's out there? Like, are we? Is this like a renaissance that's happening?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, renaissance is a good word because I think it's a combination of opportunity, and there are people who have grown up the proper way with a a lot of good influences who are ready to be content providers. You know, your Lena Wakes, your Isis, you know, even Shonda, who's been in the game for a while. But even there's people we don't even know yet who are going to emerge probably in the next five to ten years and that kind of stuff with this opportunity. And one of the biggest reasons is because there's so many places to put things down. It used to be so narrow, Jamil. When I started out, it was just the networks. Like cable didn't even really seem like the place, especially for us, to put stuff on, you know. And um, you were always working on someone else's show, or you were. It was rare for even a black writer to get a job on a white show. I'll, I'm calling it a white show, you know, especially if it was. People considered... People should
0: know what you mean by that.
1: Exactly, yeah. especially <laughs> if it was considered an important show. But white writers could always write on black shows and could always create them. And I always didn't like that. I started my career working for Keenan Ivory Wayne's and it was very inspirational to me. You know that the whole ethos that came out of. The Spike Lee and Robert Townsend and that movement really stuck to my bones because I was—that's the group that I was in. Was like, let's do it ourselves. Let's—I call it controlling the narrative. Let's write our own stories, and then whatever falls, falls. You know. And I always said, if I like the PJs was the first show that I co-created with Eddie Murphy. You know, this animated show There had been nothing like it on television. I always made the joke, which was true. If I had not created the PJs, I never would have been hired on it because that's what Hollywood was like back then.
0: Wow, you had to create it to be on it. You
1: had to create it to be on it. Um, To to create opportunity for yourself. Wow. Which is what I mean, yeah. Um,
0: Let's go back to those days, uh, working with the Wayans. Since it's about 700 of it, uh, 700 of them. In Living Color, uh, we never have Mm -hmm. and never will see probably anything like that. So. How did, that, how did you come across that path? How did that wind up happening?
1: Well, well, it was a confluence of things. A lot of it is timing, like I said. I have so many fond memories of it. In Living Color is so revolutionary. This is my history talking, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but it was so beloved because it came at a time when that culture was not represented on TV anywhere, with the possible exception, which was breaking at the same time of Arsenio's show which was starting to break at the same time. But otherwise, hip-hop was not on television. There were some videos that were starting to be played on MTV, but remember, they had that lockout of black content for a while. So it took them time to catch up with what is hip-hop. You know, they had some rap and that kind of stuff, but the hip-hop culture wasn't really on television. It just wasn't. And so... In Living Color came like this splash of life in people's living rooms, you know. We're like, oh my God, Fly Girls, what the hell is that? You know, like, why is he on this roof? What are these colors people were wearing? You know, people were, the guest artists that were on the show, the style of the comedy, they in your face and each other. It was such a breath of fresh air. I happened to get in at the time where I was in a transition in my career where the type of comedy that I was doing, Hollywood really wasn't necessarily buying, you know. I was more of a... I did political comedy. I was a little more observational, but I wasn't with the death comedy jam style comedy. Hollywood wanted that black type of performer. Then Robert Townsend talked about it in Hollywood Shuffle, that type of stuff. And he was right, which is why he had to create a path for himself. You know, So I thought, all right, I need to write and produce and be able to do that type of thing. And I had a better chance of being a writer in a Living Color than I did a performer, actually, at the time, which was ironic, even though I was doing stand up at the time. So when I when I took that meeting, I met with Keenan. And it could, it was one of my best Hollywood meetings ever. All we all we did was talk about our stand up war stories and talk about being in the business. And I was already so in admiration of the fact that he was in that chair, Jamel. Because remember, those opportunities weren't there. Think about it. That was the only place in Hollywood I could go at that time to have that kind of meeting. Mm.
0: That's crazy.
1: I mean, it's still rare, by the way. Yeah, it's not like there's it's a lot. A little less, but it's, it's not, not like a, we can have a lot, a lot of those meetings today. You right? are absolutely right. Like in terms of men, it's me and Kenya. You know, in terms of television, you know, and maybe Courtney over at Blackish because he's running that show. So, you know, and in terms of women in television, you have Shonda, you have Lena, you have Issa. You might have more women who are making the calls, you know, the people you're sitting in the meeting with. And now we have people at networks, too, in studios, which is huge. Like when Channing Dungeon was at ABC, I was over there. And just to be in a room with her... I was like, "This is fantastic," and we all knew what it was, but we don't say anything. We're just kind of, <laughs> we're just kind of smiling at each other. Yeah, we're like, yeah, niggas, this is good. This <laughs> I, is good.
0: I, I had a, a similar feeling. I actually mm-hmm. uh, rode in an Uber with Channing. This yeah, is after yeah. um, I was a part of that Obama town hall. Um, my only Emmy so far is because of that town hall yeah, that he did after the um, the summer of. Total chaos. Yeah. Um, not that we're not in a time of chaos now, but it was Philando Castile. That, and, was it
1: the Eric Garner summer? Was it 2014?
0: Um, I feel like... Well, Philando Castile no, was
1: the year after, right? Yes, it was that yeah, year, because right, that was right. the same
0: year that those Dallas police officers yeah. were also killed. So oh, that was he terrible. did I that, yeah. a town hall on ABC, right? and uh, her and I wound up uh, sharing an Uber back from... Um, where we did the town hall and uh, yeah I mean I remember very vividly having those same feelings it's like oh my god Mm -hmm. they have a black woman that is the president of this kind of network yeah I mean it's a it's a significant um, accomplishment so within limit color when Keenan told you what he wanted to do Mm -hmm. like I'm gonna have this pretty much all black sketch comedy show Mm -hmm. and the the skits and what they were looking for the tone of it is real black (laughs) were you thinking this is a disaster waiting to happen or this shit is about to be revolutionary? Well, the revolutionary. position
1: that I was in was already on the air when I met with him. Okay. So I already saw it work. And it there was only one sketch to me made it obvious why the show was different and why it would be different than anything else. And that was the Star Trek parody. It was Star Trek Wrath of Farrakhan. I, I remember. I mean, it I remember. was the funniest thing I I'd seen that. until then. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe. First of all, by the way, they had Farrakhan in a sketch that was favorable to (laughs) Farrakhan and when you think about he was even more controversial back then than he is now you know right and uh I could not believe it and Damon was so hilarious doing that you know and uh, I was like I have to be a part of this thing you know when I saw it on tv and everything so when I met with King, it was already a success so um you know he was already in that role and everything but um it's hard to explain to people how exciting that show was to people at the time. I remember when I would tell people they would, you know, I traveled a lot as a stand-up comedian. I did stand-up in those days. And they'd say, what do you do for a living? i say, I'm a stand-up comedian. They'd go, hmm, that's interesting. Like, it was kind of a, it was a curiosity. But once I got a job in a living color and I would try, I was say, like, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a writer. Oh, where do you write for a living, and go,
0: ah! in a living color? Oh, living <laughs> color! So you're getting God! real reactions, right? <laughs>
1: this reaction was yeah. just ridiculous. And, and a lot of it came from white people, too, Jamel, because... This was, in, this was where hip hop was different than any other art form, even arguably, let's call it very gordy soul pop in the 60s, which was crossover black music, right? This hip hop was bigger because a lot of people didn't know that it was these young white kids that were buying all this music. And a living color was as much a realization for them as it was for the black audience, too. There were two things happening in the culture. You Know which it's easy to look back and think it was this thing for black people, but it really wasn't. Keenan was opening up the door to a cultural change, not just a black show. That's what was different about because we already had Cosby on the air at the time, you know, and so it's a little bit
0: different, but yes, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah,
1: to bring up, (laughs) we always got sleepy watching that show, and now I understand why.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Larry, no, you did. I know what it was. Hey, this Cosby show, I can't say no chill whatsoever. Um. So but you have successfully been able to to carve a path in, in three different mm-hmm. areas acting, you know, producing right. and creating shows. Mm-hmm. So um you started off as a writer but you were a stand-up comedian so there was always it seems to be mm-hmm. this uh mindset you had that you wanted to be right. talent at some point. So mm-hmm. I guess how did you manage to juggle all three and seemingly make them work well in tandem?
1: Cuz it was always practical. Um, I started as a performer, I was a theater major in college, even though I studied playwriting and all that stuff. But I realized very early on that, first of all, I have a very entrepreneurial mindset anyway. But I didn't like... Just being an actor and being at the whims of the business, it was a terrible feeling. I'm like, that's, I get it why a lot of actors go crazy, you know, or whatever it is. It's a very difficult position. And I was inspired by what was happening around me when I when I saw She's Gotta Have It, you know, and saw what, what Spike was doing and that kind of stuff and what I said, what Robert was doing. When I did stand-up comedy, it gave me a different feeling because in stand-up, I could just write my own act. And you go up on stage and it's the it, stand up is the most liberating art form ever, because you can write a joke that morning and you're performing it that night in front of an audience. There's no other art form like that. Even theater it takes a while, if, you know, to get it up in front of an audience. You know, late night television is the closest thing, but you kind of have a, t- a team and a machine doing it. Stand up is pure. You know, it's just in your own head. I've I've worked on bits the whole day. And I'm just about to go on stage. And then I think of something at the last minute. And the thing I worked on all day was like, eh. And the thing I thought of at the last minute became a staple of my act. I've had things like that work. There's no other art form like that, you know. So because of stand-up and that, I learned to bet on myself. And like I said, Larry, if you're going to be in this business a long time, the big bets are going to have to be on yourself. You know, so it can't be the shiny object. It can't be this or that. Figure out what you want to do, figure out the path for it, and just walk down that path. The things that line up in that path, those are the things that you should do. And producing and writing for television lined up in that path for me when I realized Hollywood wasn't looking for me. I had to create a space for myself.
0: Mm. So how was it? it, So it it, was practical. Yeah, it it makes sense. Like You Mm -hmm. write something, and as you said a, a moment ago, you create something, you can employ yourself. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, so I, I right, don't know Hollywood
1: wasn't gonna say, Hey, where do we where do we find we need to hire the smart black writers, <laughs> you know? We were gotta go look for that. No, they never thought of that. They didn't think they existed. That's the thing, Javelle. They did not think they like it's existed. They just
0: want you to overlook, right? Correct. They're just like, oh, wait, who invented them? I don't understand. Exactly.
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> like quantum physics, what is that? I've never heard of that. You know? <laughs> so, um,
0: you never, that was never something that was frustrating enough for you to not want to be a part of the business, knowing that there was no, no creative space it's for Opposite. You. Mm.
1: I was inspired by the creativity around me. And, Well, I mean, people always say, Larry, how did you get into comedy? I said, to be honest with you, I got into showbiz so I could get comedy out of me. You know, if I worked in a bank, I'd still be making jokes. I would just probably get fired. (laughs) You know, So showbiz to me, I kind of had no choice. That's the place where I'm going to get rewarded for like we were talking right before this. I'm making you laugh. I'm doing jokes. I have a observation on things, that's just who I am. It's my outlook. But I'm going to do that regardless of where I am. Showbiz will reward me for it.
0: <laughs> well, obviously, as you know, there's been a lot of conversation uh, lately, uh, recently, about uh, how comedy has changed in 2019 right. and what that means for comedians who are performing now. Mm-hmm. And there's this pushback against cancel culture, which I'll tell you my two cents on that. Cancel culture doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Like people aren't actually being canceled. Yeah, you could say Bill Cosby was canceled because he's in jail. <laughs>
1: Other well, than he that, did a little raping to cause No, that no, cancer. no, I'm saying, but, you know, <laughs> right. but people make
0: it seem as if right. that everybody's getting canceled. There are some people who do some pretty bad things that come back mm-hmm. and nobody cares or whatever. So I, so this idea that there's this mob that is out to get people, I, I sort of, I guess, push back against that part of it. But where do you stand on how comedy has changed and whether or not it's made it tougher for comedians to be funny in what is supposed to be a more sensitive age.
1: I think a lot of people have forgotten um, the rules of comedy. Um, our job is to make the audience laugh. It is not to expect the audience to laugh or get mad at the audience for not laughing. <laughs> you know, It is my job to make the audience laugh. That is an active statement, you know, and it's... Shame on me if I'm not in the zeitgeist or if I'm not connected to that. Okay, I'm going to have to hope they're going to like my thing. But if they don't, sorry, that's that's just how it goes. The culture has always changed. There's never been a time when the culture has not changed. The comedians who were big in you know, the 50s and 60s when counterculture comedy came in the 70s with Carlin and that couldn't get jobs anymore. Audience wasn't listening to them. Why are you telling that? What do you mean two guys walked into a bar? Go fuck yourself, you know? Why aren't you telling me about how hard it is to have sex, you know, or whatever? You know what I mean? It always changes. And they were doing the same kind of complaining. But it's our job as comedians to talk about the culture. And we should be observing the culture and making jokes. But if the audience doesn't laugh, all right, fine, whatever. Work harder. That's how, So I have a different, completely different opinion. Part of it is my contrary mind, you know, and part of it is I love to to kind of investigate what's happening in the culture all the time. I never want... Jamel, the last thing I would think of is a joke that I wrote in 1995 to be able to work today. Why would I even want that? What's my observation about today, for Christ's sakes, you know? And now judge me on that, you know, and where we are or whatever. But I love watching people who work against that, too. Like, I love Chappelle's Sticks and Stones, You know, his observation is to rail against that. I got no problem with that. Some people don't do that. And they're funny, too. I got no problem with that. But if you're... And and by the way, his complaining is part of the art that he's doing. It's not just complaining on the side, which I like. The complaining on the side, I'm like, you could be spending that energy finding a way to make the audience laugh. And by the way, if that
0: relationship doesn't work anymore, you got to get a new relationship. Now, maybe it was just me because I saw Sticks and Stones. And I... I was not offended by anything that was that was in there but it was kind of weird because it felt like to me it all, you know there's supposed to be a, a good bit of humor or mm-hmm. truth you know all as they say all good truth is written in humor um but it, it his comedy in that one had a edge to it that it doesn't normally have mm-hmm. that yeah he was complaining but he was really railing against something it was mm-hmm. like do you, this is not even your problem like so I I, right. I guess that was the part that I found a little hard to connect with because I felt like to some degree he was old man yelling at clout. Right. But Just yes. the observation I, I made. Yeah. In yes, and
1: that's a criticism that's thrown at that and that's fine. But to me, there are different things that the culture uh, chooses to care about. You know, when Lenny Bruce was making people feel like you're feeling right now, it was language itself. It wasn't even the content of the language. It was how dare you say the F word. It was a line that you couldn't cross, you know, and it made people have those same type of feelings. Now when Carlin and Pryor come along, it's even more in that content. When Carlin did the seven words you can't say on TV, the fact that he said cocksucker in a routine Ears are turned off. How dare you say that you're perverted? There's all these issues because of where society was. They had no room for that, you know. And it's all the same feelings were being pushed out of that. There's always a line that means something to somebody. Right now, it's identity. Identity is the line, and people care about identity more than they do language, and they care about identity more than they do explicit sex. Explicit sex used to be enough, you know. But it's the culture is like eh, whatever. You know, I'm gonna go do, I'm gonna go watch porn after this anyway. So I don't care if you talk about that, but you talk about identity. That's my third rail. So to me, I'm like, thank you, comedian. Yes, talk about third rail things. That's fantastic, but you don't have to. I don't feel like do what you do, but if you're gonna do it, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm gonna clap for that. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it works, Thank you. Mm. Are there mm. any... And but of course people are going to feel uncomfortable because that's the point. That's the point, right. Yes. It's not the point to make you feel comfortable if your job is to make people feel uncomfortable. You're talking to a guy who called the president my nigga on stage, I know. you know? Oh, trust me. We're yeah. going to get into
0: that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, no, you're right. That is, the, so that is the point, yeah. If
1: your job is you want to provoke, it, provocation makes you uncomfortable. Provocation doesn't make you comfortable. It's the wrong way to look at it. If you're looking for people to be provocative... Provocation should not make you feel comfortable. You're really looking for agreement when people say that. That's what they're really looking for. They're looking for cultural agreement. They're looking for all types of agreement. And the fact that it's being that whatever their view of something is being disagreed with, that's the real problem they have. Not this, he's punching down or he says, No, motherfucker, you disagree. You just di-, and a phrase I use all the time is I disagree with your premise. And people disagree with the premise of what he's doing. Not the angle of it, because look. Like, Dave Chappelle, you know how many dick jokes he's told over his career oh, yeah. and how much punching down he's done. But yeah. when you agree more with than the punch. Think, yes. Yeah. More than his fair share, you know, and, and hilariously has punched down. So it's not the punching down. It's the agreement part of it that people don't like.
0: Well, it was funny because, and I don't know if you've been able to see this comedy special. It was um, the one that Tiffany Haddish curated, They Ready, on Netflix. I and, heard about that. I yeah. So there's a transgender comedian on there, mm-hmm. flame Monroe hysterical Mm -hmm. right and making a ton of jokes that um
1: he can make them about himself exactly we acknowledge that as a member of the community yes exactly we know that there's going to be we give people permission for that we we totally
0: do right and so i just thought about it in the context of the things that people were um sort of fired up about with uh, with with uh, Chappelle But right. I don't know if it was actually the transgender joke The only joke And I'll admit it You know It it came um, You know With a little personal bias in it Because I know the person mm. I know Dream Hampton Who did the R. Kelly docuseries mm-hmm. And so when he took a shot at her It was just like It made me cringe mm-hmm. Because A lot of people don't know who she is mm-hmm. And it's like He just threw her name out there Like right. Yeah and Dream Hampton And this bitch And it was like Wait what? Yeah. It's like <laughs> I mean it just That's why I said it seemed right. You know, a little more mean spirited than I'm used to him being, and so I was just like, "What is he exactly?" But it's kind of my point. He's
1: called women bitches before. But if you don't have a, you know, if there's nothing at stake for you,
0: one of my favorite jokes that he he's ever told was, "I'm not saying you're a whore, but you are wearing a whore's uniform." That is one of my favorite jokes that he's right. ever told. And right. It didn't offend me. But I thought it was hilarious. if he's talking about your mama. <laughs> <laughs> then it might be different. Right, exactly. Well, it depends because he might say something that's true that's and I'll be like, true. yeah, that's, that is kind of true about right. her. So are there jokes? And the I'm,
1: hardest thing in the world is to acknowledge you, the yo mama joke is really funny when it's about yo mama. That is true. It's really difficult. You're hope. like, damn! If he said they have this about, to be so funny. It's like, all right. If he
0: just said this about Dave's yes, mama, I'd be yes, like, damn, exactly. I'd laugh. But he said it's about like, my mama. Yeah, Unfortunately, you're right. I can't. My
1: mama did do that. You're right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, I know you probably can't afford to think this way yeah. as a comedian, as somebody who writes comedy and and has created comedic shows. But are there areas that you consciously think about? I don't. I'm not touching that.
1: Um, maybe not consciously, but. Let me make a distinction, too. Like, as a performer, I understand the frustration if an audience get, doesn't like certain things. And I think I approach things more as a writer, which is why I probably have this point of view, you know? And so that's why as a writer, to me, it's a back-and-forth process, you know? I There are things that I may want to dramatize. And I if the audience is interested in it, you kind of have to be lucky. That's what, what I mean by the zeitgeist. You know, they may not be interested in that. That's why some things... Some that happens the most in art, you know. Art is the form that is usually the most ahead of the audience. I always say television is the form that is the most behind the audience, you know. Although television is a little different now than it used to be, it used to be way behind, you know. And uh, uh, theater is a little bit ahead, or at least it used to be, you know. And film was usually kind of right with it and sometimes ahead. Yeah, I know this sounds real. No, 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 I
0: I get what you mean. You know what I'm saying,
1: and art sometimes could be years ahead, you know, which is why the, the phrase starving artists, you know, but they always, what they were presenting was the most important thing, not the audience. They're, that's the group that really cares about the audience the least. And that, that's why you have to give it all to, to them, you know. Musicians, interestingly, most of the time are of their times. And sometimes, some musicians are a little bit ahead, but popular musicians by and large, are of their times, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, It's rare that a musician is successful who is out of their time. Right. (laughs) Isn't it funny? No, it's true. So for me, like, you know, because of what I do, it's a combination of if I'm too far ahead, it's just I won't be able to sell it in the marketplace or whatever, you know. But I get many ideas that, unfortunately, they're either a little ahead of their time or it's not quite right. And there's... You know, I'm lucky when the things line up, but I'm always betting on the vision first. I'm always betting on that, you know, with what I'm doing. So I don't take too much time to think about what I can't do. I'm always trying to imagine a space to put something into. So I think differently than that, you know. Um, And I always tend to cross the line more than I probably should anyway. Um, Because to me, I do like provocation. I just do. I've always... I mean, The Living Color, that's all we did. We used to do this, going back to Living Color... You know, because they had sensors and stuff And they say, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that We used to put decoys, what we called in the script So there there were at least three decoys In every sketch, things that we knew There was no way they were gonna Like, They go, well, you can't do that We're like, alright, fine, well, at least let us do this The thing we really wanted, you know and we, Yeah, because we get...
0: they probably felt like they were getting something
1: Exactly, That's you can't a... do this age joke what are you talking about? You're right, you're, you're right. right Let's we're do going too far. men
0: on film <laughs> Yes, exactly
1: <laughs> Let's do this horribly inappropriate joke right here
0: No, <laughs> it, it reminds me of something that uh, Chappelle said about the Chappelle show yeah. and when he was asked like Uh, about how he came up with some of the stuff in the process and he said that he literally put a bunch together a bunch of shit he thought the network would never approve. Exactly. And they did and he was like, all right, well and he didn't expect to be on longer than one
1: season. We had a joke on the PJs where they found this old radio station and they were looking through all these old albums they found. And one once we showed it was Richard Pryor's album, That Niggas Crazy, you know. And he goes, Super can we play this now? He goes, play it. You can't even say that anymore. You know so we said that twenty years ago that show you know but it's still true
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of the word nick um so <laughs> let's talk about your infamous so i
1: guess i broke the n-word silence oh whatever. no no it was okay, it's, right.
0: it's uh look people as i tell them you know yeah. come here and speak however you speak you there's, know it's a podcast there's different you know, generations
1: this. that have different opinions of that too so, that is true which is um, another thing no yeah. it is right. um
0: as my only thing is that that is something that each black person has to decide for themselves. That's you. it. It's really that I simple. Love that. That's it's great. really that simple. If you don't use it, is. don't use it. If I you think use you're it, right. use it.
1: I know. I think you're right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, Everyone else, you're taking your chances. Totally.
0: <laughs> and yes, white people, you still can't use it. White people Sorry. should stop
1: wanting to use it. Though. I don't
0: know why they it's want the to use it. It's the
1: desire they need to get out. And yeah. they had a, I'd say white people, you had a really good run of using it. You know, you because you overused it. You've used all of your extra uses that might be in the air. You yeah, know? so just See, get it out of your system.
0: They didn't know that their time was going to come to an no end. Idea they had coming. no idea. So yep. you should have used it more. Then sorry, sorry. your great grandfather's grandfather's grandfather took away all your inward uses. What are we supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> not our fault. Mm-mm. Um, so you had a literally a nigga moment. Um, in that I had a couple of them. Actually. You have, but the one I think people know you for yes. is when you hosted the White House Correspondents Association mm-hmm. dinner, and um, I think in political history, this is probably going to be one of the most famous niggas of all time in terms of the way right. what you said. So sure. here is Larry oh, at wow. the White House Correspondents Association dinner. So,
1: Mr. President, I'm going to keep it hundred. Yo, Barry, you did it, my nigga.
0: You did it. <laughs> did you know going in that you were going to say that about...
1: Absolutely.
0: You did? Of course. You were it, like, if I get one joke off, is this one. <laughs> it was the first thing
1: I thought of. In Whoa. fact, I almost... There were a couple of times I almost dropped it. And Robin Thede, who was my head writer of that, you know, was helping me compile jokes. stuff, said, absolutely, you have to do it. For and the culture. It, it Well, like, yes, it wasn't... It wasn't in there as a joke, Jamel. It was in there as a comment. It was right. something that we could only say in this moment. And it was really, and I think Obama got it, you know, where it was like, and it was true. I'm the same age as Obama. And we were born into a world that was hostile to us, first of all, you know, and where a black man couldn't even lead a football team, couldn't be the quarterback. And the fact that he's the leader of the free world. I was crying when I first wrote that line. It brought tears to my eyes because of the weight of it. And And he got it, you know, and then to bring it back to only something that two black people could say, you know, and that last part to me was like, we're in a barbershop right now. This is a private moment. Like in in theater, you call that public solitude is what that's called, you know, Um, when you're having a private moment in front of people, you know, where it's like, you did it, my nigga, you did it. And I even said Barry in that thing, you know, like... And uh, I just, th- to me, the fact that I can make a statement like that, because here's the thing, Jamal, we were in college at the same time, we absolutely, and he went to Occidental in California, right? And a friend of mine went to, uh, we called it Oxy at the time. And I used to play pickup basketball games with so many people. We absolutely could have played ball together back in those days. That absolutely could have happened. Like, we could have been niggas is what I'm saying. We absolutely could have been niggas. It would have been so easy. So that's not even far-fetched to even say that, you know, to to see him and say, yo, Obama, man, I haven't seen... Nigga, you did it! You did it, nigga! Like, that thing, Jamil, actually could have been a thing. So, I was also coming from that point of view, too, where he could have been my nigga. He actually went to the same high school as my ex-wife, too, to Punahou. So, there were so many cross-connections, too, you know. So, in many ways, yes, he was my nigga, but he was (laughs) – this is so ridiculous – Jamil, in that moment, he was all of our niggas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know how many black people have said that in the privacy of our home or just amongst yes. each other about yes. Obama? Probably literally 90% of us have and, said and that.
1: And the love I got from the culture that got it mm-hmm. was blazing hot. But keep in mind, I got as much criticism from black people as I got from white people. In yes, because I did
0: hear some because there
1: was they thought it was disrespectful. Completely. And I get that. And that was the chance that I take. Now, when you're doing that, I took a chance and I was willing to risk being completely shunned because of it. That was the risk I was willing to take. It may have been foolish because he could have turned against me and it could have been, you know, really, it could have been a sad moment very quickly. But he jumped up immediately. And here's the thing, Jamal. This is how generous I believe our president was and is as a generous person. And by the way, I think his generosity, as a couple, I think their generosity comes across all the time. But I think it was a week later, two weeks later. Um, he was speaking at Howard and I was watching the commencement speech and goes, and as Larry Wilmore said, I'm like, oh, it's like, he's going to quote me. Is he going to bring up my nigga? And I'm like, oh my God, what's he going to say? I can't believe this. And then he, but he brought up the quarterback line. He said, a black man couldn't even lead a football team. And now, and I was like, oh, so, and that told me that he got it. He understood it. We were, you know, so I was, at that point, I was like, "Whoo, you know, thank God, you know, because he, he he doesn't have to bring up my name you know nobody howard's thinking about me you but know that, that
0: you know that 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 registered with
1: that's him. and i i thought that was generosity of spirit more mm-hmm. than he even thought i had a clever line because to me it's in some ways it's letting me off the hook because of the criticism that was out there from a lot of black people too, like April Ryan, I think was like. I, can't believe it. I remember Van Jones saying something like, "I will never be in a show that Larry Wilmore does. I will never be." Of course, cut to a few months later, I'm hosting that nigga on a show or something. You know, it was <laughs> some live show. Larry, so like, are... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh, I will my never be in a
1: show that Larry
0: Wilmore. You know, in this moment, he became president. Anyway, um, so, uh. Would you have felt differently Mm -hmm. if Obama had a problem with it?
1: Completely. Mm. That's, I said, that's the risk that I may have foolishly taken. I acknowledge it may have been a foolish risk to take, you know, because if he had not liked it, yes, I would have a completely different opinion right now. I would say, oh, Jamel, that was so stupid of me. I never should have done that. (laughs) You know, if he had taken it, because the last thing I would have wanted to do was made him feel like he was denigrated or something like that. I was hoping because of the true sentiment that was behind it, that he would get it. Because, and it, so I take umbrage when people say, Oh, remember you called the president the N word? I didn't call the president the N word. I didn't say, So this nigger right here, that would be. With the call- hard ER. <laughs> yes, that would be calling him the N word. <laughs> right. I refer to him as my nigga. That's not calling him the N word.
0: Double G's, one A. <laughs>
1: yeah, and the fact that they even have to say the N word means you're saying something way more dangerous than I said, because I didn't say, you did it, my N word. You did it. I didn't say that. <laughs> you did it, my N word. Right? N-word. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> Wouldn't have had the same punch. It's I must say, I must say. It would it's not rough. have. So um, you had to anticipate a level of backlash and that that might really set the roof on fire. But I didn't really didn't think about it. You never thought about it? Okay. No, so I only I like, thought
1: that if it might um, insult him.
0: Okay. That but was your only word. I didn't care about that Yeah, audience. so you didn't care about. <sighs> Yeah. Still don't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't think right. you did. Um, mm-hmm. And for sure, you know, a lot of people. It's
1: almost a bonus if everybody hated it. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. <laughs> just like, ah, but he got like. It, yeah. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Well, but the thing is that that's so interesting about that particular moment is that I think for a lot of black people who are watching, mm-hmm. that they don't understand that that did sum up the level of how mm-hmm. um, the community felt about him. Still do. Absolutely. Yeah, you know. And Completely. besides, like, I think we probably all know, like, you, Obama. Either he uses the N word. Of course. <laughs> That's what I was saying. I was like, hey, absolutely. Of There's course. no way a man born in the of early
1: course. '60s, as he was. I don't care if he's in Hawaii. <laughs> like, you know, nah, you nigga got all well. the way to Hawaii. Believe <laughs> you me. We've used this
0: before. Like, yeah. we, we know <laughs> completely. And, I, and wouldn't blame you considering some of the things the that you had that to deal with. The fact he changed his name to Barry to Barack. <laughs> You're
1: <right>. You know, <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. When he moved to Chicago, he knew
1: exactly what was going. on. It's much
0: like I know when the first lady goes to sleep at night, she's wearing a it and it makes me feel closer to her completely and she probably uses um you know blue magic grease and completely. like, I feel like we use some of the same hair products and yeah, that makes I think me I made a, a
1: cocoa butter reference right at the end there. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Cause it
0: was right on Like point.
1: the next people come in cocoa butter. What is this doing here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, not too long, um, after, um, Correspondence Center is, uh, uh, you know, you were, I think at the time, no, you were already on TV cause you already had the nightly the, show.
1: the nightly show. You were doing the nightly show. Yes.
0: So, um, and when you when the nightly show ended, mm-hmm. Trump was already in office.
1: No, he wasn't. Okay, Our so you show came. Went down like a f- couple months before the election because people were really mad that they canceled us at that time and all that stuff. It was a it was a big thing. Yeah.
0: Well, th- that was uh, definitely something I wanted to ask you. Is that were you, especially seeing how things play out now? Are you? Does it make you wish? that that would have worked out, seeing as how... Or are you or are you the opposite? And like, man, I'm grateful it didn't because I'd have to talk about this shit every single night.
1: No, I'm more agnostic about that because just because I've been in showbiz for so long, when shows go down, I don't mourn them, I keep going forward. And there's so many things that I want to do anyway. And ironically, doing that show kind of prevents me from doing all the other projects that I want to do because it's so all-encompassing. But I was happy to do it when I did it. I love the expression of it. The workload of it is... Is the hardest thing you can do is when you're doing a show every night on television that you're also producing, writing, and performing. And we always had – I had to prepare for two types of shows. One was that essay-style Jon Stewart type of daily show writing, which is very difficult. And by the way, I was so fortunate to have Jon Stewart, of all people, as a producer and really helping me through some of that first part. John is a whole different story. He's such an amazing, creative person. But I also had to prepare for a discussion-type show, which takes its own type of preparation. You have to be un- Things you have to have your opinion about things you have to let get, you know, you have to know who the guests are and let people rise and fall. All this type of choreography that you have to prepare for every day, so it was completely exhausting. So, part of that question is, do I want to work that hard every day? No, Jamil, I don't, but I do miss not having commented on some of the things that happen in real time. I have a podcast that I started in 2017. 2017? So not too long after that, I, I found a way in which I could comment you could do on that, it. that, right. Yeah, on my own terms, but definitely not the same. But I have to tell you, I hear almost every day on Twitter from people who say they miss the nightly show. And it wasn't just me, Jamel. We had so many great people on the show who, and I give all credit to Jon Stewart here. He came to me and said, Larry, I want to have a show on television where people who don't normally get to be on TV get to be on and get to have a voice. I was like, ah. How many people say this type of thing? And he meant it, too. You know, so we have people who never get to get on TV. People like Jamila Lemieux, you know. Yes, yep. When do you see her on TV talking about stuff? You know, unless it was on MSNBC, it had to be in there. But to be in a comedy show and talking about things in a real way, you know. Um, We had a hip-hop artist that... That didn't have to come in and perform, but got to come in and give their opinion on something, which to them was like, this is amazing, you know. Um,
0: and even for me, I mean, that's where I first met you is when I was on the nightly show is that coming from the sports space. Right. And while there are certain topics, obviously, where sports and politics collided. But to be able in a purely political comedy space, sure. talking about some of those same things was very much a treat for me. Plus, I got to say fuck on TV. Yes. And I was so excited
1: about a- that. And you hadn't even come head to head yet with no, that intersection. It had, no, it that did not That intersection happen. for you was on its way, which is kind of interesting. That was like
0: foreshadowing. Like, yes, it was. will be in this space often. It'll happen. But, I know. Um, yeah. So yeah, that part I enjoyed about it. And if not for watching your show, I would have never come across Robin Thede. Because yeah. she was on the show and was a regular and just, um, you know, some of the other uh, talent that you had that was like really, really funny. And
1: everyone was the head writer. Yeah. Black female head writer late night had oh, not late happened. Late night was not a thing. You know, and I always, people always say, Larry, did you do like a blind script? And I said, no, motherfucker, I hired a black woman on purpose. How's that? You know, try doing that showbiz for, <laughs> hire people on like purpose you just say, sometimes. Like you've
0: been saying this whole podcast, you had to hire.
1: yes. That's in exactly order right. you had
0: to create the space. Robin it has ha-
1: the same experience. She mm-hmm. had to create Black Lady Sketch Show in order to be on a Black Lady Sketch Show.
0: Yeah, and when she right. got her um when she had her nightly show on BT. Yeah, rundown,
1: yeah. Yeah, the rundown.
0: Mm-hmm. I did not realize you, you you just sometimes you never think about it as it is happening. And then it was like, oh wait, a black woman in nightly TV show that that really hasn't happened.
1: Talking about the president, yeah, talking about politics, culture, all kinds of things. That now that had not happened. Robin's still in that space by herself. Yeah, you know, we're
0: going to take a quick break though because I definitely want to get in some sports talk with you. Because oh Larry, yeah, absolutely, Larry, you got hot takes when it comes to sports, the hottest of takes.
1: I keep it one hundred percent real, Jamel. That's all you have to know. <laughs> I,
0: I think every, these are not takes. These are not. You're right because that makes it sound <laughs> as if they, you know, somehow been manufactured. I'm
1: not a pundit.
0: You are right. not I'm a pundit. A fan. You're a fan, so you'll keep it real. All right, more with Larry Wilmore when we come back. Larry, we've broken down the TV world pretty, pretty significantly. Thank God. Yeah, we got to break down the sports world now. Got it. Especially with you being a passionate Lakers fan. Man. Yeah, passionate Laker fan bleed purple and gold bleed
1: purple and gold so I told my daughter by the way when she's gone when she was low I said Lauren I don't want you to have hate in your heart for anybody with the exception of the Celtics you know <laughs> with I the her, exception, it of- is okay to hate the Celtics
0: <laughs> I understand being from Detroit I get it what am
1: I supposed to do lie yeah. to her and say she's no, you, supposed you, to you, love the Celtics you're raising her so. correctly
0: yes um you know, and, and just and not just thinking about um, you know the Lakers season in in particular, but uh, with LeBron, um, in your mind, does he have to win a title as a Laker to be cemented as a Laker great?
1: As a Laker great, yes. Okay. But not as a Hall of Famer great.
0: Right. No. No. He's. But
1: I mean, he's. As been a Laker in the Hall of
0: Fame for a long time, but
1: absolutely. Yeah,
0: but as a Laker great, like, does that?
1: I'll give you an example. Mm. Um, arguably. I mean, here's the thing. When you talk about Laker greats, tell me three Laker greats, Jamal.
0: Like Magic, Kareem, Kobe.
1: Okay. Why was Elgin Baylor not named?
0: Oh, yeah. I know, right? (laughs) That's hardcore. Yes. You said that
1: very good. And by the way, if I said the fourth one, you might have said Jerry West. Yeah.
0: no, I actually might have said Shaq. Okay, but Shaq. I, I but, like, but
1: I'm saying, but, but if I you're keeping it real about Laker greats, yeah. right? Jerry West. Damn, he, before
0: I got to Jerry West, I might have hit like Coop. <laughs> I might, I
1: might well, Jerry West belongs. But Jerry West belongs. With, but he, he belongs there higher he does. than Coop. and yeah, those people. the logo. Mm-hmm. He, he just does, you yeah. know. But who he was on the court just transcends all that. Elgin Baylor was bigger than that, though. Yeah. He scored 60 in a playoff game against the Celtics, you know. He was. He was Dr. J before Dr. J. He did all these things. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't win a championship. He didn't win a title. He was injured the year the Lakers won with with, with, uh, Wilt. You know, he had, I think it was an Achilles, you know, early in that season. And people have pretty much forgotten Elgin Baylor. Yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. It's crazy. So I'm sorry. If LeBron doesn't win a championship, Laker fans will forget the LeBron era. uh,
0: They'll go, yeah, I remember. Oh, yeah. That's right. LeBron was on the Lakers. (laughs) <laughs> um where where right? do you stand on this LeBron Jordan debate?
1: The LeBron Jordan debate? Mm-hmm. What's the debate?
0: <laughs> <laughs> there is actually a debate uh that uh-huh. well people are pitting them against each other and saying, you know, or that question about whether or not he's he's uh better than Jordan.
1: Um I'm like, there's a debate people people Think that LeBron is better than Jordan?
0: Yes, there are actually people out mm-hmm. there who think he is better mm-hmm. than Jordan. It's it's to some degree, I feel like it's a little generational.
1: I think, yeah, one of the psychological terms would be recency bias, I think, and those types of things.
0: Yeah, put Pri- that educated word on it.
1: Prisoner of the moment type of stuff. Yeah. You know? Um Well, I understand. I, always, I mean, you have a
0: generation of basketball fans that do not know what it's like to see Michael Jordan play.
1: Jamel, we are witnesses. They are researchers. There's a difference. You know.
0: <laughs> I see what you did there you using that witnesses <laughs> witness and research
1: it. We witness something. Yeah. They research it. They look at numbers, they look at clips. It's not the same as witnessing something. Correct. You know, we know why Michael Jordan is the best because we witnessed it. Right. And no one has eclipsed what he did in being the best. No one's eclipsed that yet.
0: No, I mean, but I, I do feel like what is going to happen, especially um given the shape that he's in and how he's going to be able to maintain his body, Jordan's going to, or not Jordan, uh, LeBron is going to play for a long time. And so mm-hmm. I just wonder the, the longer that he plays, I think it will be seen as a fact in a very short period of time that people will say he's better than Michael Jordan.
1: They will only say that if, if he wins another one. Well, and the way that he wins it mm-hmm. is important.
0: He has
1: to be, look, the way he blocked, what's his name, shot. Um, was it Ecuadorian? Correct. Yeah. That's Jordan-esque. Yeah. You know things like that. If he has high leverage, as they call it sometimes, those high leverage winning moments, he's got a shot at being, I think, fairly compared to it. But he has to both have those moments of dominating and winning.
0: What's crazy you know? is that, um, and look, I, as a, I hated Michael Jordan as a player because I'm from Detroit. Right. So th- we were standing in their way, and then Jordan was in. Way for a long Then it was
1: his time. It yeah. would then
0: it was his time, yeah. and, and you
1: guys lost everybody too. Yeah, lost right. everybody,
0: and uh, you know, the injury that Isaiah Thomas suffered. Yeah. You know, guys are back in six months from that now, but yeah. you know, it was career basically, career ending for him. You um, know, and
1: I found out now that he was done too. Yeah, emotionally, yes, he was, yes, done. It's he was funny done to hear that now. Yeah, yeah. and so.
0: Because of Jordan's dominance, people the Pistons were sandwiched in between two dominant eras. You had the right. Lakers-Celtics, and then you had Jordan. Yeah. And so people forget about that stopgap in between. And, you know, I, I guess I, so I, I have no reason to cape for Michael Jordan at all. But I do feel like the more this LeBron conversation persists, it, not to LeBron's fault, fault at all— is that Michael Jordan actually winds up being kind of underrated, which is weird Mm -hmm. to say, right? Is that people forget, like, he Mm -hmm. won Defensive Player of the Year. Mm -hmm. I mean, he went through a a span where I think he had 10 triple-doubles in 11 games. Like, he did amazing things all the time.
1: And the, the more proper analogy to Jordan is Kobe... Who isn't quite Michael Jordan? That's the proper analogy. And the biggest reason why it's a proper analogy is because they wanted to cut your heart out. That's what they want to do. I never get the sense that LeBron wants to do that. Like LeBron wants to win. He's very competitive, don't get me wrong.
0: I don't think he wants to cut your heart out. Mm-hmm. You know? I think he's had those moments. He have, he's had moments. he's it, had it, but is, those. It, is it a is visceral it part ethos? of his is it, personality? Is, that I don't know.
1: That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. That's why Kobe's the more proper analogy but he falls short, you know, but because they're just so different. LeBron is, you know, the way that he would be compared, a lot of it's going to be on stats, not on exploits.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, when you get into a greatness conversation, to me, you're splitting hairs, right? Right. But if we're going to split the hair, what I come back to is that first finals in Miami where, you know, he had six points against Jason Kidd, you know what I'm saying? It's like Jordan wouldn't, that is not the type of performance you've ever really seen from Michael Jordan well, at, at that stage.
1: Plus, if you yeah, because if you're really going head up, uh, LeBron's first finals against San Antonio compared Jordan's first finals against the Lakers, the vaunted Lakers who were I under mean, they were last they X- were
0: they had slowed down. They,
1: I, had, they but had, slowed still. down.
0: It, it was still the Lakers. Still it was the still Lakers. Magic. And I get it.
1: And the way Jordan arrived there. Right. You know, where
0: having to fight through Detroit, exactly. fight through Boston. It
1: was a different it was a moment. Process. LeBron almost was there prematurely. Well almost
0: because the East, unfortunately, was pretty bad. I and... know,
1: but it almost didn't serve him well for being no, there No, so It early. did not. And yeah.
0: the team and it's even with the East not being very good, yeah. that team that he took, because I covered that finals when they played San Antonio. Yeah. The only finals team that I think is as bad as that one, is probably the one that Iverson took, and he took game That's one I'm saying, yeah. here at, uh, right. in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. That was LeBron. That team some,
1: was better coach, though.
0: What, LeBron's team? The Iverson team. Oh, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was definitely better mm-hmm. coach, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was LeBron on just pure talent. Right. Not even I agree. fully learning how to be an NBA player, taking this team to the finals. And not surprisingly, they got curb stomped yeah. by one of the greatest dynasties in NBA history. Yeah. Um, so to some degree, I almost don't even count that one because he – I mean, he had nothing. He had Eric Snow, and he didn't have the Eric Snow Iverson hat. And I, I, I went to school with Eric Snow. So he had like – Eric know. Snow was practically in a rocking chair out I there. Know. <laughs> he was like – It's tough know.
1: though, Jamel, because like I, I always say the only teams you can play are the ones on your schedule. You know, you're not allowed to play a team from 20 years earlier, 20 years ahead not. of time. Yeah. You know, and Magic – was lucky enough to win a championship in his first finals, you know, but he also had Kareem on his team and, you know, the circumstances lined up, you know, and he, magic, there was maybe two incidences in finals where he fell short that is a memory.
0: Yeah. Otherwise, they were calling him Tragic Johnson. Yes. Yeah. But
1: but And even their faint memories. Yeah. But when you remember Magic, you remember how he came through in moments. When you think of Jordan, you think of how he came through in moments. LeBron, is
0: he's not clean in that way. Now, it's not a completely clean up, legacy. But you bring up Miami that first year. Miami was a, not a great look for him then. However, I think he acquitted himself when he – coming down – this is going to be, to me – You know, if if people, you know, people who are space players will understand this analogy. What's going to be his big joker is the Warriors. Coming down from 3-1, all right? Coming down from 3-1, which something, I mean, granted, Jordan was never in that position to do that. Mm -hmm. And 3-1 against a team that in history will be considered one of the greatest teams in NBA history. That's kind of big. Like that to me was, I know Kyrie hit the shot, but they are not in that series you know, and not, they don't get to that Game 7, Here's and LeBron made several to, plays in Game you 7 question,
1: to get them there. When they, because now the Golden State is kind of done. Mm. Sorry, Golden State, but you are. I
0: wouldn't kick dirt on just yet.
1: But from that glory moment, right? Right. Okay. In the moment, everything you just said, I agree with in terms of being the greatest team. When a little time passes, do you think they're going to be considered that way? And the reason why I ask this, by losing that year when they had 73 wins, yeah, ugh, like,
0: that Was the moment for where they could be mm. really considered so now I that, go
1: because mm, now I think of the Jordan
0: team that has 72, has 72 and 10 dominant, I know. I know. so dominant, I know. you know, like Ugh. yeah. I mean, Ugh. it 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 is, it's amazing, despite it how it might fade a bit, it might. Um, and then you know, even though they'd won the title before that 72 win team, people are going to remember that, no, and they're going to. Also, probably hold against them the fact that they, they signed Kevin Durant right afterwards, and so for some people, um, I I pray the Pistons someday have this problem. Okay, <laughs> of where oh you want to shit on our team because we signed the MVP? Please, can we <laughs> exactly right?
1: That's a good problem. That, to that's have. a great problem I to know. have. But
0: yet, yeah, people will look at it. Much like they used to say about the Yankees, oh, they bought a championship. It's yeah. like, they kind of won one with that core group, man. It's like it's they not. They say
1: they don't rebuild, they reload. See yeah. what I'm saying? It's yeah. not their
0: fault that Kevin Durant wanted to play with them. There's no, nothing no, they I'm can not do matter. about it. But I'm I, I hear you is that that team mm-hmm. in particular won't be remembered as as great as it should have been. But we're still it's talking. It's that
1: one season, though. Yeah. They but, win that. I, different story.
0: Yeah, but we're still talking about a team that has the greatest shooter of all time, an MVP, you know, arguably the best defensive player in the game. So it's still it's super loaded to when you compare That's that. it's a great team to have. It's a great team to they're have. They're filled with great players. Honestly. That's why they're great teams. Their, their mm-hmm. teams hold up just as well. That team holds up just as well, if not better, than some of the teams Jordan played in the finals. They do. So that's, that's how I would look at it, is mm. looking at who he played. And, you know, I mean, like that Sonic team, okay. I mean, those days better.
1: only play your schedule. I, <laughs> this is what I'm saying. You're
0: right. You're right. You can right. Only take, look, Jordan was not responsible for he, who he saw in the finals.
1: Well, How am I getting pitched to Babe Ruth? He's dead right now. How am I supposed <laughs> to do that? <laughs>
0: it ain't his fault that, you know, he had to face the menacing backcourt of Kevin Johnson and Dan Marley. You know, so Kevin Johnson was for real. But I'm just saying when you compare that to, you know, Stephen Clay, I'm just saying like this, it's going to be, it's going to be a debate there. It's going to be a debate. See, you like, you know, you like provocation. There you go. Mm. <laughs> just no. something to chew on. I like how
1: you're sleeping on KJ, though, who's one of no, those electrifying guards No, look, I remember, time. who is it mm. that he
0: dunked on? Uh, was it Olajuwon? No, yeah. I don't know if it was Olajuwon, but. He could
1: play in any era. Kevin Johnson. Totally could play in any area. Yeah,
0: air. I wasn't shading Kevin Johnson at all. Uh and, and Dan Riley was a hell of a shooter. Oh, absolutely. Charles That's Barkley, cool. the MVP. So
1: it's too hard to Barkley, man, he got caught in the wrong time. I know. That Phoenix team did have a chance, though, I have to say. They really did have a chance. But they couldn't take advantage of the moment. That was yeah. the thing they didn't take advantage of.
0: I well, the, that it was, was sad once
1: he went to Houston and everything. And he was, was trying sad. to baby train his way that to one. That was win. really sad. Yeah. You know? Well but the Phoenix he had a shot.
0: This is also why I try to, and it's hard to convey this to basketball fans of today, is they do not understand the finality, the inevitable of when you played against Michael Jordan. I know. You were going to lose. It was just a matter of how many games, right? Maybe. Yeah. And I don't know if LeBron ever arrived at that point. No, In never. his career where never. it was an inevitability. Golden State had some of that. Golden State definitely yes, did. you're right. Yes, but his team's not so much even in Miami
1: Lakers had
0: it <laughs> the Lakers did indeed have it I'm, look, especially I, in the ups. I love the yeah. Lakers they're you know responsible for two of the championships that the Pistons have won so I'm mm. super excited about mm. that including the one where y'all stacked like 70,000 Hall of Famers on one team in 04 mm. yeah it's like had mm. every Hall of Famer in the whole league on one team
1: yeah it was sad when you were up on us though in 88 and we came back and beat you there that,
0: that was, was some sad. bullshit Isaiah was hurt it was so sad yeah <laughs> Injuries. Yeah, I had. really
1: felt sorry for yeah, you Yeah,
0: I'm sure you did. Yeah, And then when Magic, <laughs> I then Magic, Magic I was
1: injured the next year, and Byron Scott, then you guys beat then us. Then we so ran y'all. I gave you props for beating an 04, injured Oh, for you got team. no excuse.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right. yeah, Shaq, Kobe, Calm Gary. We were injured. <laughs> yeah,
1: Everybody was injured. Should have in
0: swept team. you. That's the thing. We <laughs> yes, should have swept you. So you should have swept We should have swept you. I agree. All right, Larry. Before I get you out of here, um, we're going to play a little game. All right. Uh oh, Look at that. Me throwing these curveballs at you. The game is called... This or that. Okay. I'm too lazy to name it anything else. You get two choices.
1: Okay. This or that?
0: This or that. So I'm going to give you two choices. Don't try to invent two other choices. Don't bring oh. in four choices. Don't say, okay. well, what's the weather like? Like, eh. Mm. Two choices.
1: Okay. That's all you got. You're giving me the choice.
0: I'm giving you the choices. Okay. All right? And, you know, the fate of human existence depends on this. Oh, my God. i right. scared. Good. You should be. So since we were talking about your Lakers, Uh-oh. Magic or Kobe? Magic. You said that definitively. I like it. Because it's true. All right. I happen to agree. Uh, mm. Sandy Koufax or Jackie Robinson? Jackie Robinson. Well, you know, a lot of Dodger fans. Sandy Koufax was a good considered pitcher, to be but the Jackie
1: group. Robinson was a transcendent athlete that was bigger than the sport.
0: I'll allow it. Um, mm.
1: Ooh, are you Sandy Koufax?
0: No, no, no. I'm, oh, okay. No, 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 not at all. But I think Dodger fans, many of them consider Sandy Koufax to be the greatest Dodger ever. So that's why.
1: That's why, you know, I clearly... I like the fact that he wouldn't pitch on the Sabbath. I mm-hmm. like, Way to keep it real with your religion, Sandy.
0: See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, girlfriends or living single?
1: Um, I have to say living single because um, it's more of my era. Mm. And they did it first.
0: Office or Parks and Rec? Office.
1: There's no Parks and Rec that office. <laughs> Once again, I'm prejudiced because yeah, I work for the office. Yeah, because you wrote for the show and you yeah. were on the Plus show. The, the original office is television...
0: The it's British royalty, Party. yes. Okay.
1: Television royalty is the original. Yeah. Um.
0: Obviously, uh, you have a very popular podcast, but I, I have to no say I'm you. super excited about the fact that, um, the the women who played, um, the woman who played Pam, Jenna Fisher, Jenna
1: Fisher, and mm-hmm.
0: who played Angela,
1: Angela Kinsey,
0: yes, that they're doing a podcast.
1: I'm gonna be honest. <gasps> Are you really? Uh, they want me to talk about the Diversity Day episode. Which by the I, way, which I was on. By
0: the way, yes. one of the group, we, me yeah. and a friend of mine, um, my girl uh, Kelly, we have this we have this uh-huh. debate all the time about what was the greatest.
1: Yeah, it's one episode. of the ones I'm it's very the honored that it's up easy. There. We easy. had so much fun. By the way, at that point, a little Office info. Some people, people thought our show was going to be terrible at that point, and I would tell people, "Yeah, I'm writing on this new show called The Office." They go, "Oh, really?" Because their Couplings had come over from England at that time and had kind of failed, and people thought The Office was going to do the same. So I said, no, no, it's going to be good. We're going to do our own thing, you know, but it was not accepted. We were not looked upon kindly at first. iTunes made The Office successful, actually. Our ratings were horrible. The first, first few episodes were horrible. Kevin Riley, head of the network, liked the show, decided to come back. We only picked up for six episodes. And uh, we did, as we we're writing the six, we got a few more. And we always wrote it like we were going to be canceled. So that's why we were going for it with the Jim Pam stuff and all that stuff, you know, and um, with our episodes. And really wanted to make the show our version of it. In fact, in the first season, the name of the show is called The Office in American Workplace. A lot of people know that's a full time. I did not know that. Yeah, I still have a mug and a jacket that says (laughs) The American Workplace on it. It's very cool. Kind of
0: long, but okay. I know, right? (laughs) A little bit.
1: Yeah, because they didn't want people to think it was the English version. But Mm -hmm. here's what happened, Jamal. So the show still wasn't doing well in the second season. Once they put it on iTunes, people started finding it on iTunes. This is when iTunes was first playing, like, TV shows, and you can buy it. And because it started getting a second life there, that saved us, and the show took off. Third season took off. Wow. It was almost canceled, like, twice, I
0: think. That's crazy. Um, I mean, if I had to think of my top five episodes, it would be Diversity Day, the basketball episode. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so funny
0: um the dinner party um yes. when michael burned his foot in the foreman <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably that one and um maybe diwali maybe diwali oh yeah Diwali. And, yeah so it's 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 tough like i yeah between i don't know which one i've watched more of the right. officer of parks and rec
1: my personal yeah. favorite, only because I pitched the idea, was the Halloween episode. Oh, where, that was good. Where the Because I thought it would be funny if he had to fire someone while everyone's in costume. Like, that was how the show, the idea of the show started. Yeah.
0: So, um, not to totally derail this game, but to derail this game. Because I, I could... Oh, do, so no, let's keep playing. No, here. no, no. But I, I just have to ask you, so how did, it, how did it come about that you... Did you write yourself into it? Is that what happened?
1: No, it was the opposite. Um, I was... On the show at the time, I was at NBC. I had an overall deal, and I, was, I knew Greg when I was doing the PJC, He was doing uh, King of the Hill. We knew each other from the animation days. And um, we used to see each other at the Emmys, that type of thing. So um, um, NBC asked if I would help on the show. I had done Bernie show, single-camera show, so Greg was his first one. So it was great. I was there as a consulting producer writing and all that stuff. And so I was developing shows at the time. While I was working on The Office, so kind of doing double duty. And many times, Jamel, when I'm on a show, like shows that I do, I'll do the table read or that type of thing. Because I'm a performer. We haven't casted the actor yet, maybe. And you do that. And maybe I'll read three parts. And am I going to get laughs? Hello, I'm a comedian. I have an ego. Of course I want to get laughs. Of course I'm going to try to crush it at the table, you know. So in the Diversity Day episode, I was one of the writers just reading because we hadn't cast it yet. And it got huge laughs. And Ken Quapis, who was directing it and Greg, said, Larry, you have to do this part. And I go, no, we should hire somebody, you know, doing I said, no, you were hilarious. I said, look, at least audition somebody, you know. So then, <laughs> they didn't audition anybody. They said, okay, Larry, we audition one person. You have to do it. So I thought, you know what, maybe I should do it. And I was at a point in my career where I wanted to make the transition back to performing because I had been writing for a while. And it just lined up where it just happened to be the right thing. And I, I was so glad that I did because it was kind of my transition back to performing. It was like a couple of years later, I was doing The uh, Daily Show and doing other things, you know? And it was so much fun. That cast was so hilarious. And Steve Carell doing that Chris Rocker. Doing oh, my that, God. Why still, is it that Chris I know. I still have outtakes from that on do DVD. You? Oh, that are hilarious. Oh, my you know, goodness. That you could not do in television today.
0: No, no. You know? I do think you could do that episode yeah. today, though.
1: I don't know if you could do that. Episode. You don't think so? Well, you'd have to bleep more of it. Oh yeah, you would. But yeah.
0: generally, the concept, a hundred percent. Right. Um. All right, we'll keep going. Um, in love and color or Chappelle show?
1: See, you're talking about stuff that I do. You know, it's so sad. Okay, I'm gonna. Oh man, that's so because I love Chappelle show. That's a tough one. Mm, I'm gonna do a surprise. I'm gonna say Chappelle show. Yeah.
0: Mm, I didn't expect you to say that. I thought for yeah. sure you'd go. Go and in living color. You uh, know,
1: Chappelle's show has aged better.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because um, mm-hmm. there's no question, eighty percent of the kids they could not do in living color. From in, in, in its in time, color.
1: there was nothing bigger.
0: Right. Chappelle show
1: probably made me laugh more, though. Mm-hmm. I have to admit. Yeah. You know, there the. I think the humor was more dangerous on Chappelle's show than living color.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, completely. <laughs> it's the the black white supremacists. All of it. <laughs> so good. Uh, even though the, I mean obviously you have Rick James and the Prince kid and all that which was oh, amazing yeah. Paul Mooney on anything was great but Completely. I don't know my favorite I still yeah, come Charlie back Murphy. to is Mad, Mad Real World man that yeah. like <laughs> that skit so of the funny. real world was so hysterical
1: yeah Prince is uh, probably my favorite that one yeah
0: man. I mean it's, it's, it's yeah. hard not to pick that yeah. one um, so I know what happened to your Dodgers my condolences mm. um, but would you rather have a Dodgers World Series or a Laker, or Lakers NBA title
1: Always Lakers. Mm. Always Lakers all the time. Um, sorry, Dodgers. I do love you. But like I said, you know, what? Lakers is just it. We have to win. I mean, you know that feeling, Jamel. When you have your team, there's nothing. I'm a prisoner of this. This is not my opinion. I'm a prisoner of it. <laughs> there's nothing I can do about this.
0: Should I should have asked you when the Dodgers are still alive in the playoffs to see <laughs> I if you still it's well true.
1: By the way, a Dodgers-Yankees World Series would have been great. But. Now that we've lost, I got to kind of root for the Nats because they're kind of the underdog, you know? I,
0: I feel a like Nats, you should. A Nats
1: championship would be fantastic. I know. I mean, yeah.
0: hasn't D.C. paid enough? They got the Redskins exactly. and they got Donald Trump. So I haven't they paid the enough? enough?
1: You would think. That's so true. <laughs> That's They've suffered a, so much. Suffered. They need this championship. <laughs> they do.
0: They do. Uh, um, you can say that every Strasburg <laughs> page. <here. laughs> Final one, Larry the Comedian or Larry the Writer.
1: Larry the Writer. I put it first because um, it is – I like crafting jokes even more than performing them, you know. Um, putting it together, putting it all together. I would even put Larry the producer up above Larry the writer because every writer hates writing but love having written to quote Dor- Dorothy Parker, right?
0: That's who said that it was Dorothy Parker. Dorothy
1: Parker, <laughs> Yeah. Right? Okay. Um, who has some of the best quotes ever. Age before beauty, pearls before swine, I think is another one of hers. Um, but um, – yeah, it's something about that process. And, and then I look back at my career. Even in stand-up, I used to write jokes for the comedians when I did stand-up because I just love crafting jokes, you know. In Living Color, my best memories are in that writing room coming up with those ideas and that kind of stuff, you know. And even today, when I think of, you know, it's the creation of the show itself which is more enjoyable to me, which when you ask about the nightly show, as much as I enjoyed it, it really was the one part of me that was so overwhelming it was like too much almost in some ways where i'm not hoggy for that kind of thing you know but i am i love coming up with stuff like if we were here all day just jamming and stuff it's so much fun doing that you know and figuring out something that somebody hasn't done before you know performing it is different i feel like a lot of people could be in that lane but the figuring out to me is a smaller lane it's more narrow you know and so it's just fun. So there you go. Yeah, my explanation of that.
0: Look at that, and you added a, a thoughtful explanation to go along with oh, it. See, well, um, mean. Larry, thank you for Jamel. Spending I'm this so time. happy we
1: got to be in each other's podcast. We did. This is great.
0: I know we have become best friends. People love your podcast, by the way. Oh well, thank They're you. Like, this Jamel thing is unbelievable. I like enjoyed I the conversation, and I'm so sure my listeners will definitely enjoy this conversation. So good luck with everything. Uh, So Larry is out, but I'm still here. You guys know what's coming up next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Let me give a disclaimer before I say what the fuck I'm bothered about. I'm not one of those people who runs from evolution. Change doesn't bother me. If I'm saying the same things, doing the same things, thinking the same things as I did 20 years ago, that means I haven't lived life. I remained stuck in one place. But there are some things that I just got to draw my line in the sand. I don't know if you noticed, but we live in a society that wants to label everything. Most of our labels are necessary and make sense, especially as it relates to identity. Conservatives are always throwing around the term identity politics like it's some kind of slur. But the truth is that identity is very critical. It's crucial because if we understand identity, maybe we can develop some empathy and be comfortable with the idea that we're allowed to have unique experiences. But that being said, there's a new identity group I'm just struggling to understand. This new group, or relatively new group, is called autosexuals. If you're not familiar with the term, and trust me, I wasn't until I saw it on The View, judge me, yeah, I watched The View. Being an autosexual means that you love yourself more than you love anybody else. Now, I don't mean just love yourself. I mean love yourself. I read a first-person account by an autosexual that was published by Medium. And here's how this autosexual describes what being an autosexual is like. If you're like me, then you've gotten those crush-like butterflies in your stomach just thinking about yourself. I am my own partner, and not just in the metaphorical sense that women's magazines often encourage as a means of self-care. As an auto-romantic—now there's a new term— I experience the relationship I have with myself as romantic. And because the relationship I have with myself is romantic, I find myself treating myself like I treat a lover. My alone time, as I'm my own lover, is so necessary, it's essentially sacred to me. So now we have two new identities autosexuals and autoromantics. You basically go with yourself, you, your own partner. When you say, baby, put something sexy on tonight, you're talking to yourself. And you're more turned on by looking at yourself than you are by looking at other people. Look, I'm all for self-confidence. I am as progressive as they come. But sometimes I fear we're going to outthink ourselves out of existence. We have too much damn time on our hands. We got a whole ass new genre of people because somebody looked themselves in the mirror and started feeling tingly. Make it make sense, y'all. Stay unbothered. Jamel hill is unbothered is produced by spotify studios and unbothered inc and recorded and edited by rich burner and cadence 13 ashley van horn is our head of talent evan dick is our executive producer jesse burton is the executive producer for spotify and denise holly is the program manager our theme music is provided by Corey greenleaf and ben darwish you can find more from me on twitter and instagram at Jamel hill